Hey Harbour City, it's Grant here. Uh, I don't have any COVID updates for us right now. I'm expecting after next weekend we'll have a better idea of what is coming up for us as a church for the next while. But for now, we are meeting for church at home like this on Sundays. We don't have any in-person gatherings and our life groups have moved on to Zoom. We can't meet in each other's homes for now. We'll keep you updated as more information comes available. But if I can just encourage you, please be careful, please be wise at the moment. I know many of us are tired of just these lockdown regulations and just what we're living through. But please continue to wear masks and sanitize and socially distance and be careful and thoughtful with what you do. Um, but this morning I wanted to really pray for us as a church. Shell uh, was telling me about an article she read that used the word languish, just saying a lot of people feel like they're languishing right now. Now, if flourishing is thriving, languishing is kind of the opposite of that. I, I think of it, flourishing is here and perishing is here. Languishing is on this kind of end of the spectrum. So I want to pray for those of you who feel like you're languishing or another interesting word is listless. You're, you're tired, you're apathetic, you're drained, you're weary with what is going on at the moment. If that's you, I want to pray for you. And just as we gather like this this morning, I'm trusting actually God would meet with you, would encourage you, would give you grace to endure and hopefully would speak to you through his word this morning. So Father, we do come to you as a whole church, some of us strong, encouraged, full of faith and joy, others who feel like we're languishing and are feeling a bit more weary. And I ask you right now, Holy Spirit, to meet us in our homes, to meet us where we're at, to encourage us, to build us up, to give us strength and grace to endure. And I ask, Lord, as I preach this morning, that you would speak to us from your word and that you would point us to Jesus in your name. Amen. Well, if you know me, you know that I love words. Uh, I studied English and culture at university. I was a copywriter at an ad agency for a while. I read a lot. And actually, I keep this little notebook with me, uh, at least at home, where I write down new and interesting words that I find and just their definitions. So I find that so fascinating. It's a nerdy thing about me. So words can be interesting, at least to some of us, but also words can be things that we dislike. My wife, Michelle, really hates, I know that's a strong word, she, she really dislikes the words moist and haunches. Uh, I know some of you are the same, actually. Hate, hates the words moist and haunches. And it's not what they mean, it's what they sound like. Moist, haunches, they're, they're not great words. And in our culture at the moment, there are definitely some words that we find off-putting that can make us bristle when we hear them. And I know as a preacher that I've got to be thoughtful around some concepts I share or the way that I share them because the words can trigger us. They can upset us. They can make us feel instantly uncomfortable and switch off to the message from God's word that I'm trying to get across. And there could be a lot of words that are in your mind right now. But this morning, I want to talk a bit around authority and submission. And actually the way that God's word has authority over our lives and how we are called. It's our responsibility to submit our lives to God's word because of what it is. And I want to ask you, please hear me out. Please don't disengage just because I've used those words. I know some of you, you might have a bit of a tick going. You might be feeling strong emotions or feelings around those words. But please engage. And the reason I say that is because I know in our culture we are skeptical of leaders and authority figures and institutions. I know that we are wary of the abuse of power and position that goes on all around us. And I know that we are on guard against manipulation and control. So I know you could be a little bit on edge as we talk about the authority of God's word and submitting to God's word today. But this is really, really important. 
Eugene Peterson wrote this. He's an amazing author and pastor. Actually, he's inspired a bunch of the series. He said, it is clear that we live in an age in which the authority of scripture in our lives has been replaced by the authority of the self. We're encouraged on all sides to take charge of our lives and use our own experience as the authoritative text by which we live. And what Peterson is saying is that today, many people are skeptical of external authorities. You know, these these authorities outside of ourselves. But at the same time, we give control to our feelings. You know, we submit to our feelings and emotions and and give them authority over our lives and our decision-making processes. And there's a bunch of these mantras in our culture that reinforce this idea. Things like, be true to yourself live your truth, follow your heart. These are all statements of authority and submission to our own hearts and feelings and desires. Which means that in our culture today, self-denial might seem like the greatest heresy and even abuse to yourself, which is hard for us as followers of Jesus because there's a tension there. You know, Jesus has called us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. And for 2,000 years, that's what Christians in the church have been doing. It's at the heart of what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus promises us that in that way of life, a way of self-denial and following him, a way of submission to him and his authority, that there is life and life to the full. Life and life to the full, fullness of life in him as we submit to him in his word. But he also says this, Jesus teaches us that if we are governed and led by our feelings and desires, what the Bible calls the flesh, if they are our authority, then we won't find satisfaction. Actually, that they lead us down a path of death. All of us watching this, all of us in the world submit to some authority, whether that's internal or external. And all of us are living out a story that we have been taught have been discipled in a story that we believe in. In Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, the Great Commission, a really well-known passage in the Bible, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And what we learn from this command of Jesus, this great commission, is that Jesus has all authority, not just over some places, like in the Lion King, you know, Mufasa takes Simba into the top of the rock and says, everything the light touches is your kingdom, but not that dark place over there. No, Jesus has all authority over all things, over heaven and earth, over everywhere and everything. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus' words and teachings are authoritative over our words and lives because they are his words. He's in charge. He calls the shots. He is God. So yes, we submit to his authority. But this is so important. Linked to those truths in this unbreakable bond, they're paired together forever, is the fact that God is also good and kind and perfect and loving, and that he is working all things out for the good in the universe and the good in our lives by his authority and power. So because of that, we can trust him and we can submit our lives to his authority and to the authority of his word. And we can do that because we know that whatever God's word says is good and it is good for us. We know that because of who he is. So the question isn't can or must we submit? It's it's will we? Will we submit to his word? 
AJ Swoboda is this pastor and author and professor who I've learned a bunch from. And he lectures at a seminary and in his course, Intro to the Bible, he says that he always gives a lecture on the Bible and science. And in that lecture, he talks about this idea of vasopressin. Now, I know some of the doctors here are listening, just wondering what I'm going to say. But in the lecture, he talks about vasopressin and says, when two people have sexual intercourse, the brain releases a rush of chemicals called vasopressin. Those chemicals are the brain way of helping people bond so that they might solidify nurturing cooperative relationships that sustain life. However, when people, uh, however, when someone has multiple sexual partners, the vasopressin receptors in the brain stop working the way they should. They burn out. Neuroscience shows us that the human brain is wired for bonding and that promiscuity inhibits one's capacity for life-giving long-term relationships. Swoboda says that when he shares this, I think, really interesting scientific tidbit, the people are like super engaged and interested because this is neuroscience. You know, it's this authority in their minds. This is scientific information that has to be true. But when he shares with these same students a list of biblical texts that say exactly the same thing, that call us to sexual holiness and uh, to commit to doing that only within the bounds of marital faithfulness, that these people look at him like he's a time traveler from the second century, sharing these old-fashioned, outdated ideas. And he says, you know, from this experience, that when it's neuroscience, it's interesting. When it's the Bible and it's truth, not as interesting. And that the students that he is teaching are Christians. So why is that? I learned about something this last week called the Pygmalion effect. And really this idea is that what we think or believe about something affects how we behave towards it, which in turn affects our experience of it. And in turn, you know, there's this cycle, this reinforcing cycle that goes along with that. So let me share a really awkward example. And I hope you'll go and watch the YouTube video of this because it's, it's amazing. It's hard to watch, but it's amazing. In 2009, John Piper, who's a preacher, author, pastor that I've learned a lot from, he was called to preach a sermon to the American Association of Christian Counselors. It's 8,000 people, huge, intimidating crowd of Christian counselors and psychologists. And, you know, these are people who know the way the human mind and soul and psyche work. These are people who've counseled many and seen problems. And uh, he jokes and talks about how they can see through you easily. So Piper gets up to preach to this huge intimidating crowd. And he says he feels so vulnerable about preaching to them. And he starts a sermon. It's, I mean, it's a really amazing intro, very humbly and honestly, just disclosing his own insecurities and fears, his struggles, his failings, his own hypocrisy. And he does this to build trust with them, to let them in on his inner world. And you know what happens from this group of empathetic counselors who sit with people and hear their problems and the realities of their life every single week? As Piper shares these things, this crowd look at him and they laugh in his face, like raucous laughter. And Piper's absolutely bewildered, as I think you would be or I would be if we were doing this. You know, you're feeling vulnerable, you're feeling intimidated, and then people laugh at you when you share these things. So go watch this on YouTube. I mean, this is, it's kind of a shocking thing to see because you see how his face changes. He looks a bit angry, a bit hurt, a bit scared, a bit surprised, a bit confused. What is going on here? He even says to the crowd, you're a very strange audience. And then he says, this is a serious talk in case you're wondering. And both of those responses are met with raucous laughter, the crowd thundering with laughter as he says these things. 
So he, trying to manage the moment, says to them, okay guys, get it out of your system. But he just looks horrified, like he wants to be off of that stage. And it's only later that Piper found out that the person that introduced him before he got up to speak made a huge mistake. That they introduced him as the comedian that was coming up to bring some light comedic relief and entertainment in the middle of their conference. What a super awkward experience. I'm sure it was really intimidating for him to finish that message and to get up to preach again. But this is the Pygmalion effect that I'm talking about. You know, what the crowd was told about John Piper changed the way they thought about him or what they believed about him as he got on stage to speak. It affected how they behaved to him, even as he shared serious things. And that in turn affected him and his experience and his response to the crowd and theirs to him and so on and so on in this kind of uh, cycle. And I share that because it's the same with our engagement with the Bible. What you believe about the scriptures, you know, that will affect how you engage with them and what your experience will be of them, which will reinforce what you believe of them and so on and so on. So if when you think of the Bible, you think of a dusty old book, irrelevant, boring, not interesting, nothing to say to your life, then when you come to read it, that's what your expectation will be. You know, very low hopes of actually learning something or being impacted by it. And that will affect your experience and reinforce what you view of it, particularly if you read a difficult passage or something that doesn't speak specifically to you. Or what if you see the Bible as a book of strict morals and rules and laws? You know, who wants to be wrapped across the knuckles when they read a book? Who wants to be told what to do? Who, who wants the bar set higher for their lives? None of us want that. If we set the, or see the Bible in those ways, it's going to affect the way we engage with it and what we get out of it. But if we, when we come to the Bible, we approach it as God's word. As we come to the Bible as the words of an eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, loving, wise creator and the king of the universe who is also our father in heaven who is mad about us. And we read these words as his self-disclosure. You know, his revelation of himself to us, that he's showing us who he is and the way to know him. And he's helping us to come into the fullness of his story and the fullness of salvation and life that are found in him. If that's what we think of when we think of the Bible, we'll be excited to read it because we want to know him. We want to know his words and his thoughts and his will. We want to live in this life, this kingdom that he's called us into. We'll happily read it. We'll happily submit to its words. We'll happily submit to its authority because we know that he is good and his plans and his will are good and for our good too. If you've got a Bible, can you turn to 2 Timothy 3 with me? It'll come up on the screen if you don't. But this is a key passage in this series that we've been doing that talks about what the Bible is and what its purpose is and how we should respond to it. So let's read from verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's a lot in there. Well, let's start with the word continue. Paul writes to Timothy and says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. And really what he means is don't just start out in the ways of God. Finish the race. Don't just start out in what you've believed. Finish the race believing. 
See, 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote before being executed, being martyred for preaching and following Jesus. And Paul knows that these are probably his last words that he'll ever speak or write to Timothy, who is his son in the faith, his apprentice, someone he's mentored for years and who he loves. And Paul writes here as an older, wiser father in the faith. And he's writing to encourage Timothy, this younger man, and to encourage him in what is most important. And what does he say to him? You know, there's so many things that he could have chosen to say in this letter. But what he says here is, Timothy, continue, continue in what you have learned and believed from God's word. That's his encouragement to him. And it's something we should all pay attention to. You know, we we see in uh, the scriptures a little bit more about Timothy's story. We know that he grew up with at least a Christian mother and gran. We don't know about his dad and the rest of his family. But since he was a kid, we know he was taught the Bible. So when his mom or gran tucked him in at night, kissed him on his forehead, read to him the scriptures, prayed with him and said goodnight and switched off the lights, you know. Timothy had heard the Bible since he was a little boy. He'd sat through many church services. He'd heard many sermons. He'd been in many kidsmen classes. And he had godly mentors in his life, like his mother and his gran and Paul, who had helped him as a disciple, who had mentored him and coached him and set him an example of the ways of God. And now when Paul writes this, Timothy is the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus. He's a young man leading a big church. And weekly he's standing up to teach people from the Bible. And he, during the week he's counseling them from the scriptures. And despite all of this exposure to the Bible and to the word of God, Paul still feels it's necessary to remind and encourage Timothy to continue in it. Continue in what you have been taught and what you have believed from God's word. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing today. Continue. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. You know, don't go another way. Don't get distracted by all of the voices and distractions and voices and pushes and pulls of life. Continue to believe. Continue to live out what you have been taught and what you find in God's word. I know some of you are sitting there. You're too polite to say this, but you're like, Grant, you're really uh, milking that word continue for all it's worth. I got it. Like we're smart. Harbor City, we're an intelligent church. We know what continue means. Let's get on to the good stuff. We see there's some good stuff coming. But the reason I want to emphasize this word continue is that we have an enemy of our souls. The Bible talks about Satan or the devil who does not want you to start in God's word and he definitely doesn't want you to continue in it. Satan is strategic. He's cunning. He's thoughtful. He's waiting for an opportunity to stop you from continuing in God's word, to lead you astray. And if you see yourself as on the road of the way of God, the will of God, the the word of God, Satan is looking for any off-ramp, any time throughout the rest of your life where he can get you to turn onto some other freeway, some side road, some small road, just any direction other than the direction of God. That is his goal for your life. And we see this from the beginning of Scripture. Right in the beginning, Genesis 3, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there. Everything is perfect. They've got everything they need. They're in perfect relationship with God. They're free from shame, guilt, sin, any of that stuff. Enter Satan. And Satan comes into the story and he asks Eve about the one thing God had commanded them not to do. God had said, hey guys, you've got free reign. You can do whatever you want. Just that tree over there, don't eat its fruit. And Adam and Eve were good. And Satan comes along and says, did God really say that? Did God really say? He's subtly undermining the command of God. He's questioning it. 
He's sowing the seed of doubt in Eve's mind about this clear command that they've got so that they won't continue in it. You know, they've been taught this command by God. They've been living it out or continuing in it. But here Satan comes into the story and by his voice, by his word, he influences them to not continue in God's word, but to go a different way. And their sin caused a lot of pain and problem in their lives and in our world today. Fast forward through all of that. We're going to go through all of the Old Testament and human history until Jesus is born. We see in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is about to start his ministry. He's in the desert. He's fasting and praying. And who comes on the scene? Satan is back. And Satan starts with something I've experienced and I'm sure you have too. He questions and challenges Jesus' identity. Have you ever felt that? (laughs) You know, how can you call yourself a Christian? I know what you just did. How can you think that God loves you? How can you think you're a son or a daughter of God? And with Jesus, he does it. He says, you know, if you are a son of God, prove it. Prove yourself. Demonstrate that you really are that. And he twists and distorts the scriptures and tries to lead Jesus astray from continuing in the ways of God and worshiping God to starting to worship and follow him. You know how Jesus responds in each of these situations? Matthew 4 verse 4, it is written. Matthew 4 verse 7, it is written. Matthew 4 verse 10, it is written. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, didn't respond in his own authority. He didn't just speak his own words, which he could have done. He didn't need to quote from a book, but he did. He spoke and answered Satan according to the authority of God's written word. And what we see here is that Jesus himself continued in the way of God by using the word of God. And that has to influence the way we think about the Bible and the way we think about how we live out our faith. I learned this while I was preparing for the series, but in the Gospels, what question do you think Jesus asked more than any other? I've taught this before, but the most commanded thing in Scripture is do not fear. What do you think the question Jesus asked the most was? Have you never read? Have you never read? Jesus had all of these people coming to him and asking him questions. He had these religious leaders, Pharisees, coming not just to ask, but to try and trip him up, to trick him, to get him to say something that would get him in trouble. And when they came to him, Jesus would say, have you never read? Don't you know what the Bible says about that? And what we see in Jesus' life is that he sets us an example that the Bible is very important and has authority over our lives because of what it is, because it's God's word. So Harbor City, continue to believe and live out what you have learned from God's word. It's the first thing we learn here. Now, the reason that Paul gives to Timothy that we should do this is because the scriptures are able to give us wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, which I think is reason enough. In a few weeks, we're going to look at how the whole Bible is about Jesus, the Old Testament before he's born, pointing ahead to him, the New Testament after he's born, even after his death and resurrection, like pointing to him and declaring him to the world. It's all about him. We're going to get into that soon. But let me just read one passage to you. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 to 5. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and it goes on from there. But here Paul is writing to a church in Corinth about these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and his death and the purpose of his life and death and all of those things. And here we see 
that Jesus and what he did is at the center of the scriptures and at the story of God and at human history. The whole of the scriptures were pointing ahead to him. And after his uh, birth and, and his life and all of that, it's declaring him to the world. And the scriptures offer us salvation, forgiveness of sins, relationship with God, a new life, eternal life. But it is all through faith and trust in Jesus. He is the doorway. He is the roadway. He is our strength. He is everything in the story. So if you come to the Bible, and maybe that's you today, and you see it as a book full of wisdom and moral lessons and teachings, you're going to get a lot out of it, you know? There are some amazing quotes. There's some amazing ideas. Matthew 7 verse 12, the, the golden rule is something that probably everyone everywhere believes in. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. But at the same time, if you come to the Bible as just a book of rules and morals, you're going to keep getting tripped up on Jesus because he's everywhere. He's the big idea. He's the main character. It's all pointing to him and finding its fulfillment in him. And if we trust in him, and if we read the Bible with him as the central and big idea, that this is his story, that it's about him, then you know what? We'll be able to play our part in it. And the scriptures will come alive to us in a whole new way. It's in the scriptures that we find wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here in 2 Timothy 3, Paul is telling us what the scriptures are and what they're for. And he writes that all of the scriptures, you know, not just some of them, not just your favorite verse, the one you memorize, the one that's on the fridge, not just the ones you agree with or like, but all of the scriptures in the whole book of the Bible are inspired by God. And because of their divine origin, it means they have authority. Because of the one who has spoken them, whose word it is, they have authority over our lives. And that's why we submit to them. And what Paul says here is that everything in the book of the Bible is valuable and profitable for us because of who it's from. I love a good book. I love a good podcast. I learn every time I listen to something. But those are human ideas. That's human wisdom. But in God's word, we find God's wisdom, God's will, and God's ways. In God's word, we find God's wisdom, God's will, and God's ways. What is your view of the Bible, and how do you engage with it? I hope you have never heard about this before, but there is a Bible called the Jefferson Bible, or the Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It was written by Thomas Jefferson, who was the third president of the United States. And what he did is, as he read through the scriptures, he took a razor, and he cut out the verses that he liked, and he stuck them into his own new translation of the Bible. Or I guess you could say edited it or wrote it. But sometimes he would literally cut out half of a verse. He didn't like the beginning or the end or the middle. He would just take the bits he liked and put them into his new new book. And only 990 verses from the Bible made the cut. It might sound like a lot, but he cut out 30,112. He said, I don't like these. I just like these 990. And he took out everything he didn't like, the, the supernatural bits, you know, Jesus's miracles and verses about the resurrection and verses that said that Jesus was God. He cut those out. And then he also cut out everything that uh, he found unmanageable in what it meant to be a disciple. You know, he only kept the things that he liked or that he could accept. And a friend wrote of this because this should be quite shocking to us. A friend wrote of Jefferson's Bible and said that he didn't write this to shock or offend anyone. Rather, he composed it for himself. Jefferson made this for his own devotion, his own assurance, and for a more restful night's sleep. Harbour City, please don't do that. 
Please don't do that with your Bibles. I know the reality is we all do that to some degree. We all edit or ignore or leave out or kind of overlook certain verses in the Bible that we might not like or we might struggle with. But if all scripture is inspired by God, you know, if all of it is useful or profitable, then we can't do what Jefferson did with God's word. We can't just pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we'll agree with or follow or believe or teach or, or anything like that because it is all God's word. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I love that passage because it shows us what God's word does as we're exposed to it. Taryn Williams in his book on the Bible says this, Correcting means that is what not to believe, whereas teaching means this is what to believe. In the same way, rebuking means that is how not to live, while training means this is how to live. In other words, God's word tells us what and what not to believe and how and how not to live. And it's true. You know, the scriptures are not just like a novel that we would read and then put back on the shelf and pick up the next book. No, the scriptures are meant to be a part of our daily lives. And we read through them and we fuss through them and we apply them and work out how they look in our everyday lives because they're practical. They're there to be lived out and obeyed. And here we see the things that the scripture does as we read it. You know, the scriptures teach us you know, here we see the teaching of the Bible. It's this positive guidance and instruction that we need to grow in godliness as we follow God. It says that the scriptures rebuke us. And I think that's one of those words that we don't like. You know, I've said a few of them now, obey, command, rebuke. But every now and then you and I do need a good rebuke or a reprimand. You know, when we need to turn aside from the way we've been going or what we're believing and turn back to God and his ways and truth. The scriptures correct us. Now, when I hear that, I think of a wagging finger. Don't do that, Grant. Stop doing that. But actually to correct can mean to set right. Kind of like a, a brace, which might go on your arm or leg or around your back or something to hold it in place and to help with your posture or to help you to heal or mend. Or maybe like a cast where actually your bone has been broken and it's being fixed and mended by the cast. That's what correcting is. It's to show someone what to believe or what to do and what not to believe and do to help us to find the right way. The Bible also trains us. It prepares us to serve and follow God and to do ministry in this world. And this is so key because the Bible calls each of us a minister and a priest. We're all given gifts by God to use to advance his kingdom and point people to Jesus and, and love the world and advance his kingdom and do all of these things that he's called us to do. And God's word trains us for that. And we see in verse 15, uh, 17 that constant study and exposure to God's word, it matures us. It grows us up, it completes us, and it equips us because it contains the knowledge of God's will. God's word works in our lives to form us significantly. Let me end with this quote. Reading the scriptures should be an exercise in our submission to God. We don't read simply for information, but also for formation. We read so the scriptures will shape us to be more and more like Christ. Spiritual formation is not measured by how much we know about the Bible or how often we read the Bible, but by the way we follow Jesus. This is the bottom line. We can be familiar with much of the Bible and start, still not love or follow Jesus. 
Harbour City, we don't want to be a church that becomes really knowledgeable and knows the information and can quote scripture, but doesn't know and love and enjoy and follow Jesus. We don't want to be a church that knows the scriptures, but doesn't love people. No, no, no. We want to be shaped by the scriptures to become more and more like Jesus, formed into the image of Christ. That is our goal. And we see here that that is what happens through his word. So I, I want to encourage us. Can, can we commit together as we look at this passage to humbly and teachably open our hearts to what God is saying to his word as we daily read it and pray it through and engage with it? And then as the word teaches us or corrects us or rebukes us or trains us, can we submit our lives to those teachings to do what God has called us to do? Let me pray for us and we'll end. Holy Spirit, I know that we need your help in this area. I pray even now for everyone listening to this today, for those who need to respond to you in certain ways. They know what your word to them is. I I pray, Holy Spirit, empower them to respond. Empower them to submit. I pray, Lord, open our eyes that we might know and believe your word. And Lord, help us to respond to it, to live it out, to follow it. Jesus, as you gave such priority to the Bible, Help us to view it in the same way you did. And Lord, we pray, open the eyes of our heart. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might grasp these things and grow into maturity and to minister, be equipped to minister and serve you in this world. As we go into this week, Lord, where some of us feel like we're languishing and are tired, please fill us up now, Holy Spirit, and please empower us and send us out to do your work in the power of the Spirit in Jesus' name.